Today in the show, strategy plus action equals the real power of personality types. Great coaches and consultants like you have the ability to change people's lives and transform entire organizations. And your impact can often go far beyond the clients you work with. One of the reasons I love working with coaches and consultants is because of that ripple effect. This show is here to highlight your expertise and empower you with resources and new ideas to grow your business. Welcome to Strategy in Action. Welcome to episode 53 of Strategy and Action. Today is part two of my interview with Anshar Seraphim. If you haven't checked out part one, make sure you go and do this because as much as you'll learn from Anshar in this episode, um, you'll you'll have even more context around his expertise and some of the things leading into today's discussion. Um, so make sure you go and, and do that. Today we're digging into one of my favorite subjects, uh, what I first heard him speak about, which is, you know, different personality types. And I, I think most folks, certainly in if they've been in the business world, coaching world, um, certainly corporate America, you you hear about the different kinds of tests you can take and all of that. Um, and and I think people's reactions to them range from the, oh, it's a bunch of nonsense to, you know, the gospel, you know, <laughs> and everywhere in between. I think they're, you know, they're they're fascinating because it's an insight into people. And that, of course, fascinates me. Um and and there's a there's a baseline that that these tests give us that allow us to make sure that line of communication is flowing the way it's supposed to so that we're not saying a bunch of things with our intent that aren't being received by the other person in the way that we intend and vice versa right so um it's really powerful just to have any kind of insight into people in a quick and efficient manner so that you know as soon as we meet someone we can sort of start to to navigate that conversation in a much better way and this isn't about you know putting someone in a bucket and that's where they live you've decided who they are <laughs> to their core from the beginning by any means this is a way to start this is a way to better navigate um a relationship with someone however high level or deep and intimate um it's amazingly powerful. And Anshar, you know, educates us on not only understanding our own personality type and figuring that out and what some of the others are, but how to how to quickly use this and apply this um, in all these different ways. All right, let's jump in. Welcome to Strategy in Action, everyone. Anshar, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me again. Yes, indeed. This is this is fun. We we jumped in. We knew we'd have at least a, a two-parter. If you haven't checked out the part one of our exchange here, I encourage you to do so. There's some amazing uh, background on Anshar and as, as well as everything that we we dug into. That now we get to skip because we get to just jump right into the the, the, the meaty stuff here. And you know, we touched on it a, l- a little bit in part one, which. Is are, are these different, you know, personality types? And I know you have a, a lot of experience in that and walking people through, um, which also bleeds into, you know, learning styles and all of that, which is just, it's fascinating. But for the viewer and listener who maybe 
maybe they don't care. Well, we're also going to tie that all together in terms of why you should care and and why you better care (laughs) and and how this makes you a better entrepreneur, coach, consultant, how all this, this ties together. And, you know, this is one of those subjects, and, and I may bring it up again when we're in the middle of all this, that it can seem overwhelming when we get into personality types and learning how other people take in information. It's one thing to do it for ourselves, which I, I definitely want to start off with you and jump in with, and it's critical that that's where we start. But then as soon as we get into, well, now you need to learn something about each of these others so that you can apply that when you're interacting. You can recognize that in other folks. It can get overwhelming. So I want to make sure that we we could bring this full circle by the end of it so that that seems less overwhelming to everyone. So let's jump in a little bit of what we even mean by different personality types for, for folks who haven't dug into there yet. So one of the things I like to to tell people, you know, because I, I, I've been studying, you know, this topic for coming up on 20 years now, is you don't need to become a master of psychology to do what you do. Um, I think that any of us who've ever worked in a storefront or sold a product or a service understand that there's a certain set of psychological reactions to your product, service, presence, personage, storefront, so on. And the, where you need to start is you only need to focus on the part of psychology that relates directly to that. Um, you know, I, I have autism, so I, I have a, a lot of weird special interests. Um, I got into to close-up magic for a while, actually. I actually did that on the, the mezzanine level, the Silver Legacy, for a little while. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting is that because uh, you know, I was interviewing with Steve, and and he was talking about being a bouncer at a nightclub, and um, it's not that he became a master psychologist, right? It's that from being that person that's at the door, he learned to recognize traits of people who might create certain situations or whatever when they win, and that's that's all that you need to do as far as psychology. So the reason I mentioned my autism and special interests is one of mine is puzzles. And one of the things that I noticed early on is that people can have a different psychological, a certain subset of different psychological reactions to something based on their unique psychology. And if you can get into your prospect's head in that way, then that's where you should start with regard to personality types and stuff. And this is just a funny example. I mean, this is a Rubik's Cube. This is going to take us back to the 80s here. But when a person does, you know, something that other people think is very complicated and it becomes easy for them because they have practice or because they have, you know, facility with that, then there's a certain set of psychological reactions that'll happen. And it's like a script. You know, people will be like, oh man, I used to just take the stickers off or, you know, I used to be able to do that when I was a kid or I would just, you know, break it apart and put the pieces back together or I used to know someone who could do that or they make a denigrating joke because they feel socially uncomfortable because you have facility with something that they don't. There's, you know, maybe a list of 10 or 20 reactions that you're going to get, but it's always the same. And the reason is, is that the, the personality system of a person is kind of like a flowchart, And when you drop input into it, it goes through a certain set of pathways and then you get output. And 
what you can learn from that is that when a person comes into a psychological situation, maybe they walk into a jewelry store and they're looking for an engagement ring and they've never been engaged before, that psychological scenario creates a bunch of different predictable results in that environment. You know, I was interviewing with Steve and he had this, this huge skeptical look on his face when I told him, you know, when I'm working at a store, let's say, and someone walks in that I could identify their personality type by looking at them. But the reason that I'm able to do that is because I'm not looking at that person devoid of context. I'm putting them into a situation with a stressor and then looking at their reaction to that. And since there's a limited number of reactions that can happen in that scenario, now I'm able to look much more, much differently at personality and communication because all I need to know is how the different types respond to that scenario. You know, are they telling me about, you know, being used to take the stickers off and making a joke? Are they doing this? Are they doing that? You know, and so with the jewelry store, you know, it's the person who comes in and they've already got three printed out pieces of paper with a whole bunch of information on diamonds and they've got six business cards from going to different stores and they look as if they've seen a ghost. Or the, the next person comes in and they work in sales and so they're not make, wanting to make any direct eye contact with anyone because they don't want to be sold on anything because that to them means that they're, you know, in the shark tank instead of being the shark, you know, or the person comes in with their partner and they're like rolling their eyes behind them. Like, Oh God, how much is this going to cost me today? This is the eighth store she wanted to go and look in. There's a, a certain set of psychological reactions. If you can find out what the most common reactions are to your product, your service, your consulting, your coaching or whatever, you will be able to identify immediately a certain subset of objections, um, emotional framework, personal framework, and that already gives you a starting point. So it's important for me to mention that before we get into personality typing, because that system can seem more complicated than it is. What you really need to understand is what happens when you drop input into that system, what kind of output are you gonna get, and how is that going to change your approach? I think one of the biggest mistakes in sales and negotiation is that people can jump into a spiel. And that happens as a result of a lot of different things. One of them, it could be introversion. Um, you know, now we're being forced to be extroverts, and so we have to systemize that. But another is that we can get so used to giving sales presentations or product or service presentations that we kind of jump into the same information and use the same sentences and stuff over and over. And that is a huge mistake in anything but the most logical of sale processes because the same behavior that closes one client will walk another. And this is where communication and personality type comes in. So with that preface, the first thing that we focus on before we move into personality type is communication. Yeah. Awesome. And and, and just to, to keep the viewers and listener who maybe isn't fascinated by this, or if they they feel like it's too scientific or anything, I want to bring those folks into this this better frame than that. Because you know, as humans, we just think, oh, we just need to, you know, interact with people as people. And when you put them in these buckets, and they're going to react. Well, no, what we're talking about here are tools so that you can actually 
be more human <laughs> with them. It's actually the opposite because if you if you don't take this approach, what you just talked about, if you just go into some rote script that you give to anybody who walks in the door, that's about the least human thing you can you can do, right? Because <laughs> it's again right. all about you, all about what you're selling and not about that other person. So make sure that, you know, as you're watching and listening to this, that you're 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 doing it through that filter. Like these are are the amazing tools so that we can relate better to that other person and actually build some kind of relationship there. See, and, and this can be you know, a problem for people that are, are highly emotionally intuitive. You know, um, I was doing an interview with Marlana and she's an INFJ and that's one of the rarest personality types. And it's, it's kind of like being Sherlock Holmes with emotions. And, um, you know, if you imagine she's got great people skills as a result of that, because she can sometimes tell when that emotional narrative is changing before the other person even realizes that it is. And that's great, right? The problem is, is that when you have a natural skill, you don't always know how to do it reductively. You don't know how which which parts of an approach to take out. Plus, you you are always looking at things through your own framework. You know, one of the biggest mistakes that we make in in communication interpersonal dynamics um, is we we do that whole golden rule thing of treating other people the way that we want to be treated. And that's a great ethos. It is. It it helps us be able to treat strangers that we haven't met with respect. But it also completely invalidates. The fact that that person has different needs, different style, different communication, and a different experience than you. And you see it in, in romantic relationships all the time. You know, uh, maybe one person, um, their personal value system, uh, because of that, doing something like cleaning the kitchen for a spouse before they come home. That to them would be really meaningful because it's not empty words or promises. It's not a platitude or you know a simple gift or something. They actually took the time and effort to do something that improves the space and show that they're invested. So that might really resonate with that person. But then if that same person, when they want to show love and affection to another person, cleans the kitchen for them, but what that person actually needs is quality time or you know a gift that shows that you understand who they are or... Uh, physical touch or, you know, words of affirmation, whatever, whatever their love language is, if it's not the same as yours, they'll walk right past that kitchen that you spent two hours on or just say, hey, the kitchen looks nice. And then they'll just walk right past it. And they don't feel any of the things that you're trying to transmit. And that can be a critical error. So instead of using the golden rule, we, we try to use what's called the platinum rule, which is you treat other people the way that they need to be treated. And in order to do that, you have to learn enough about what's important to them to do that for them. And that's one of the other things that we get to in interpersonal dynamics. So um, I think the first approach we have to talk about is peer groups. And, and the reason that that's so important, because that kind of gives us the rubric of why personality typing is so important. Um, peer groups, and, and this is important sociologically and with evolutionary biology too, because you know that whole herd animal mentality you know, if you're, you got a group of primates and you got another group of primates and they're competing for resources in an area and one chooses to go off in one direction and one chooses to go off into the other, from a biological perspective, we don't really care about the survival of the other group. We don't care about their needs, wants, and desires as much as we do about our own. And any animal that, that functions in a social structure like that, and human beings included, um, that is a mindset thing. And, and I've, I've given this example before, but if, if you consider something that was um, 
really big and on the news, like September 11th, for example. You know, we, we lost quite a few thousand lives then. But in that same time period, we had like 10 times as many people dying to Boko Haram in Africa, but it wasn't even on the news. And the reason is, is that they're not in our peer group. You know, we are only predisposed to care about people that are like us. So if you can understand how powerful that dynamic is, I think one of the, the ways that people can relate to that, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a crude simplicity, but if you've ever seen a group of like friends standing around in a circle and something happens to one of them, maybe they get uh, you know, kicked between the legs or something like that, you'll see a physical reaction in all of the people in that peer group that are connected. It's also the reason that we can enjoy an emotional reaction on YouTube or enjoy watching you know, sports is that our brain, if we relate to what we're seeing, actually lets us have a phantom experience of wh whatever's happening to that person that's in our peer group. And that means that uh, provided that you can establish a peer relationship with someone, that you literally have the ability to affect their neurochemistry in a direct way and change their emotional and psychological impressions. And that's what everything is about when it comes to communication and building trust and, and getting buy-in and directing behavior and you know being a trustworthy source for someone to ask you questions and not creating an adversarial sense in the in the sales relationship and so those peer dynamics are crucial so before we get into the nuts and bolts of personality type we have first have to talk about communication style um, because the first way that we identify other people as being like us is how they communicate. And you'll see lots of really basic things. You know, does a person use a lot of gesticulation with their hands when they talk? Do Does a person use a lot of fact-based language or do they use a lot of emotionally focused language? You know, you can ask a person, two different people, the same question. You know, what, what did you enjoy about your last vacation, let's say? And a, a person who's an NT type, a person who's logical, right? They'll give you a laundry list of all of the goals that they accomplished or the places that they saw or you know what they did at what time and why. And then the person who's emotionally focused will talk about how those things felt and how it changed their narrative and what was different. And it was so amazing to look at the, you know, the um uh the Sistine Chapel and look at the look at the ceiling and how it felt and you know because they're emotionally designed with experiences and that's how they transmit them as well. And if you're not using that same language when you talk to that person, you have already othered yourself as not being in their peer group. And this is why learning, you know, a little bit of a smattering of the languages uh, in your in your local region or you know, in your customer avatar and your customer base, it's not that you need to be a polyglot. You don't. You know, you just need to understand the the cultural narrative and the the uh, the language narrative of that culture, because if you could drop little shibboleths, little things that, that identify you as being closer to that social group, it will completely change the reaction of that person because it's it's almost like they've met a friend that they haven't met before. And you will see that in sales, you know, when that moment happens. And that cognitive reframe is important because it means that they are mentally moving you either closer or further away as someone in their peer group. And if you can start a negotiation, an interaction, a sales presentation, a coaching session, you know, uh, a board meeting, having people be closer in that peer group, then you have already taken the largest step toward being able to drive a behavior 
that you want them to do, whether it's for their own benefit, for success, for sales numbers, for integration, for corporate buy-in, whatever. Um, yeah. And it, go ahead. Sorry, real, real quick too. Like, it's important to note why it's so critical to take the time to learn this kind of stuff, because they they won't tell you otherwise. You won't know otherwise. They won't know otherwise why there's a disconnect right they yeah. won't know they're not consciously going oh he's not in my peer group now because he mm-hmm. doesn't speak it's all this subconscious aspect Reaction of the things. stimulus yeah 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 absolutely and uh like with marlana she's talking about being an infj and being emotionally intuitive i bet she's she until she had that talk with me she never considered that using that process on someone who's very logical or who's very introverted can make them feel invaded. It can make them feel scrutinized. It can make them feel like uh, like someone's implying that they don't have awareness of their own emotions. You know, you have to be aware, and this is where, where self-inventory is necessary. And that's why when we talk about personality types, we start with finding out our own. And um, if you can understand your own preferred method of communication, are you fact-based? Are you feeling-based? Are you a fast paced communicator or are you more deliberate? You know, it's not that I, I think that that sometimes people associate people who communicate slowly, maybe as being less intelligent or and that's not it at all. You know, when people are framing their ideas and expressing them, everything from the kind of household that they grew up in to the culture that they grew up in, all of those things affect the way that they transmit information. And when you get into advanced psychology, also their jobs, their chosen vocation, or the the kinds of challenging social situations that they put themselves into also affect communication style. Because if you're a a C-suite and you're an introvert and you have to do public speaking and you have to get buy-in, there is a mode that you will move into um, in order to be able to do that. I I was working with one C-suite and she's uh, she's an engineer. Right. And she's on a board and she's trying to get corporate buy-in. And every single time that she was on a scientific topic or something like that, that was natural for her, her glasses would be down, almost no gesticulations. Her tone would be one way, kind of language you'd be one way. And then when she, when she talked about something that was outside of her sphere of influence, but that she had learned about in her position, the glasses would come up. And the hand expressions would change and the kind of language because she would be, you know, doing it from like almost like a teaching perspective. And one of the things that you learn from the Jungian archetypes, you know, because that's what the Myers-Briggs is based on the MBTI, is that, that Jung asserted that there were unconscious personality types and that there were conscious personality types. And what's that, what that means is, is that you have a base type that's comfortable for you that you've you know, developed as your own mode of expression. But that also means that there are alters that you can put on to move into a different mode. And you can construct those from scratch or you can construct them by accident. And when you're able to do it with intention, that means that you can create one of those alters to be able to act as your, uh, your emissary when you're dealing with people with different communication styles and stuff like that. And you can do that approach on purpose. So that's where personal inventory starts. So um, there's lots of different easy ways to take the Myers-Briggs. Some people can get skeptical about the Myers-Briggs because Myers-Briggs, they weren't actually psychologists. What they did is they did the same thing that the people who did body mass index, but they were statisticians. They were looking at census information about bodies 
And they were trying to integrate that in an easy to read way that made sense with the data. They did the same thing with psychology, but it's based on the union archetypes. And this isn't, you know, we talk about the Furrer effect in psychology sometimes when we give people like, you know, astrological zodiac, you know, horoscopes or something like that. And people want to apply things to themselves. This is different. And it's because they're asking you directed questions about the way that you handle situations and that you perceive things. And then taking your own answers, your own information, and showing you what happens when you answer yes to this question, yes to this question, will you probably do it this way then? And you'll get to see trends in your own personality. Um, so I, I recommend taking that test. You can take a longer, more involved one, um, for uh, like a paid one. There, there are free ones that you can take that are shorter, but be aware if you take a shorter test that because there are, and this is one of the things that people mess up, because there are unconscious and conscious, you have to think about what is your nature not what if you learn to do, because we want to separate those into two separate piles. So when you're taking the Myers-Briggs, you know, you want to ask yourself, what is my normal psychological reaction to this? Not what have I learned to do, but what is my normal inclination? And if you can do that, then you will be able to identify the different earmarks of personality that you have. Um, personality goes on a spectrum using their rubric and lots of you know, personality out there. I'm not saying don't take a different one. I'm just going to be covering this one because it can be a big topic and I don't want to talk about it for five hours. But you've got to have four letters and they indicate introversion to extroversion, um, intuitive to sensing, thinking to feeling, and perceiving to judging. And those are on a spectrum, like a number line, right? And so um, be aware that this is not a checkbox. It's not either I or E. They'll give you a percentage where are you on that spectrum? And then it'll be the same for each one. Now, for someone who's very polarized like me, I mean, I literally have autism. So there's a reason for that, right? I'm like 97% introvert. I'm like 96% intuitive. I'm like 98% thinking. And I'm like 90, 94% judging. So that personality type is going to read you know, like a riot act to me because it's going to be dead on the money because we're identifying it by those types. When you're more in the middle, let's say you're an ambivert, right? And you're halfway between I and E. And when you get that test result, you're like dead smack in the middle with just a slight preference to E or I. You should read both of those types for both I and E, for example. Yeah, I, I had then, several. I think I had two or mm -hmm. three of mine were like 48, 49s, like right mm -hmm. almost in the middle. <laughs> yeah. When you find what those slight preferences are, then what you should do is... And this is not something that the test tells you. This is something I'm telling you to do. Find the different spheres in your life and then ask yourself, which one of those two types, which one of those approaches do I use for that thing? And what you'll find is that when you are an ambivert, there are subjects you are an introvert about and there are subjects you are an extrovert about. It's not that you can switch back and forth at will. It's that you've learned through your own organic process that to have a preference to one or other of those approaches. And because you're enough in the middle, you have the ability to do that. So that's where you start with that. Yeah. Um, Would you recommend, cause I, I thought about this as I, as I went through it this last time, would you recommend almost like taking it twice where you see those, those big differences? Like I'm going to answer these questions in my work life. I'm going to answer these questions mm -hmm. in my personal life to get those different. You readings. absolutely can. You absolutely can. I think that one of the things that can be really helpful 
is you can ask yourself the question, what kind of personality type would I want to represent my brand? What would make it easiest for me to be able to connect to my clients or my, you know, my, my, the, the people I need to get buy-in from? And then put yourself into that mental mode, answer the questions that way. And then when you read that personality type versus your own, you'll be able to recognize the gap between point A and point B and what skills it is that you need to work on and where those disconnects are. And this is when we're, you know, we're talking about how to be able to apply advice and make it work, um, going backward from the desired result. Find out what the desired result is. What would be the most effective way to transmit my personality, my unique brand, whatever, in order to serve you know, the people that I'm serving, and then go backward from that. All right, well, that goes into these elements of personality. These are my current gaps. What are the steps to be able to get there? Okay, well, I need to would get peer group of people with this personality type. I need to put myself into this or that challenging situation. Then you can make a plan. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, is there, is there, a, I guess, is there a scenario that you see that, that, that we should even create this other, like that it shouldn't just align with your personality type. But is there a scenario that you, that you've seen or come across with like, Oh, that it makes sense to go and, Right. Create a brand and that's a different one. I think one of the problems with entrepreneurship, especially like solopreneurs, is um, they start getting into this mentality of selling themselves. And uh, at, a, at a cursory glance, that seems like a good idea. You know, but what you, you really have to focus on the recipient of the message. And sometimes we forget about the people who would need our good or service the most because they're the people that are least like us. You know, I don't think that it's about selling yourself. I think that it's about looking at who it is that you're serving, looking at it as the, about what you want to accomplish with them, and then finding the parts of yourself that allow you to have a unique perspective on that, and then use good communication and understanding to be able to convey what makes you different, special, unique, better in your approach. Because that's the part of you that's unique and different that you do want to sell. And the rest of it is probably holding you back from being able to connect to the people who are least like you and still need you. Um, so when you go and take the test, and I'll give you, you know, here's some really easy way to find a free one. If you go to Google and you just type in J types two, it's all one word. So J T Y P E S and the number two, uh, human metrics has a free test. It's only 69 questions. Now, if you take like Myers-Briggs, like a career planning class or something like that, there'll be like 300 questions. That's because they want a larger data sample size. So because you're taking a fast free test, you have to really, you know, mentally focus. Okay, this is my default personality style. This is the way that I inherently react to things. Don't overthink the questions, but you have to have it through that lens and you can get an accurate result. And then you can go to a more in-depth site like uh, 16personalities.com, for example, and then there'll be a full profile workup on, on that particular type. And the, the purpose of that is just to identify your strengths, your weaknesses. You know, I, I can speak to it in my own perspective here. This is easy for me. I'm, I'm an INTJA. So um, 
I'm intensely critical and logical. I appreciate things by deconstructing them. My, uh, I, I form mental models of things with comparative models. I'm into lists. Uh, I have a highly organized brain. I don't have a lot of respect for the status quo. Uh, I love challenging ideas. I don't inherently recognize authority figures. I, a person has to demonstrate that they have that authority for a reason and that the rules that they're giving me have a reason or I have no respect for them. I have to like modify that perspective. I have to be careful. I can have difficulty relating to emotions. Um, I'm constantly applying the rubric, does it make sense? And sometimes that can lead me astray in interpersonal actions that, that involve emotion. You know, so you can recognize <clears throat> a lot of the weaknesses and strengths that you have with that personality type. And it's not to say that one personality type or another is better or worse. What you're really recognizing is the facility that you have, what you're strong at, what you're going to have to work on to be able to to interact with people that are different from you. And it helps you create a plan of personal development too, so that you can recognize your areas of opportunity and actually focus on them and not discard them. You know, uh, when I was talking with Marlana, you know, one of the things that she deals with a lot is, you know, she's trying to, to help people um, get themselves out there. You know, and that's really easy for her as an F type because she understands the importance of emotional relationships. But we can get to the point where we kind of drink our own Kool-Aid a little bit because of our personality types, but also because we tend to surround ourselves unconsciously with people that are like us. I once worked with a, an energy company, right? And I was trying to give them, you know, here's the stuff that you need. You know, I was working with someone else. We were giving them the stuff that they needed to improve. Their entire website didn't have a single human face on it. No micro expressions, no nothing. It was a bunch of just abstract colors and a bunch of numbers and statistics. And that's because as NT types, as engineers, and they had surrounded themselves in a little you know, covey of engineers and were only throwing ideas and stuff back and forth to those people, that they felt that an idea would pass on its own merit, that people would take a look at the evidence and then already be bought in for the conclusion. And that only works with people that are like them. You know, we have to recognize that there are different ways of convincing people. You might have to have social proof, emotional proof. You might have to show narratives of people that, that people can relate to so that they are uh, that their fear of change goes down enough to be able to change a system that they're relying on for something like power, for example. And then you're taking a look at the cultural resistance too. In that market where that particular energy company was, there were a bunch of scams that were going on with energy companies at the time. And you know, you want to make sure that you're differentiating yourself from that narrative too, with trust. You have to put some extra focus on that. What are the, the, um, what objections have, have primacy in that market with your target audience? But because they didn't have the personality type that would need to see those things, they jumped from that to saying that it wasn't important. And after being given the entire presentation, they weren't able to recognize that that was something that they needed. And they shrugged their shoulders and decided not to do it. And to this day, their site is just a whole bunch of colors. And there hasn't been a lot of market movement with them recently as, as the last time that I looked. So these lessons are hard won. And um, you know, some of the biggest industries that we look at have made these mistakes. For example, um, look at Coca-Cola. You know, They did that whole venture of going into new Coke and uh, doing the taste test challenge and all of that. And they operated off of a, a really bad assumption and that is that whether or not one drink tastes better than the other is why people are buying it. 
And that might be where their position is from the industry or their, uh, their position as, you know, drink scientists or whatever. But it doesn't necessarily pay credence to the nostalgia, the social relationships, the cognitive associations that, that people have had with their product for them being around for so long. And yeah. as a result, they lost a ton of money spending money on a new flavor that wasn't, that wasn't what was important. Yeah, and, and and two things with that. One was it was a reaction to their competitors, right? Because Pepsi was gaining the track. They started the taste test stuff, but where Pepsi went wrong and Coke went wrong and their reaction was that, yes, in a side-by-side and taking a little sip, yes, I prefer this over this. It's sweeter. I can do this. But they found in the market when people think about their week of drinking Coke or Pepsi – well, that's too much. It's too, it's too, you know, it's all this. And then, or they're layer. thinking about their family relationships or that first Coke that they had when they were six years old. Exactly. And adult popped open for them. And people don't necessarily want to change that. So they had yeah. to learn the hard way. You know, thankfully, they had enough resources and market exposure and all of that. But this is one of those things of why good market research and market research that does, that's done in the right context can help you get an understanding of what the reactions to your product or service might be that aren't your own. And, and that's an important process too. So now that we've built that framework, um, if you go to that test, that test you can do in like 10 minutes, it's really fast. You can see your strengths, see some of your, you know, not necessarily your weaknesses, but your areas of opportunity. And then I think that a good exercise also is to get some of the people that you have closest to you in your life already and get them to take the 10 minutes to take the test too with the same instructions and the same framework. And you will be able to identify right away, and this is important for your own personal buy-in too. So don't operate off of the idea that just because you can hear this and recognize that it's a good idea, that that's really going to incentivize you to take action. If you do this and you get to see the personality types of the people that are in your immediate sphere of influence, and you can recognize the patterns of communication difficulties, of differences in interest, of differences in approach, and see how it affects the way that you interact with the people closest to you, you won't be worried about whether or not Myers or Briggs were psychologists or any of that. You'll see a practical application of that system, how much of a difference it makes in the the changes of approach, and how the common communication difficulties that spring up between you and that, and that other person where a lot of it is rooted in. And it's that moment that you'll have that moment of anagnorisis, that critical moment of real, realization. Wow, this is something that I could actually use to improve. And I think that you need to give yourself that moment in order to give yourself, let yourself be closed on the next step. Because otherwise it's just a bunch of stuff for you to do. And uh, you know we hear a bunch of that in this industry. You know, people give all of this advice and if, if you can do something simple like that to see how much of an impact it has, then you will understand that that is a critical gap, a critical area of opportunity in your way that you present your good, your service, or your personage, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's strong. Yeah, when you can, when you can put the things together, it's, I mean, it's that critical aspect of like learning something, but then actually knowing something, right? You know, that difference. And when you can... First, identify it in yourself. Great. Oh, yeah, I do do that. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that does resonate with me. But then that what you're talking about, that's the real, I think, like hook in is when you can uh-huh. see that other person and 
that's why we always butt heads when we're trying to figure out where to go to dinner. Because and now you're going to be motivated because if you change that one thing with that one person who's closest to you, now it's affected your life. And you now you're like, results. okay, how do I point this at making money? Because then, yeah. then you'll be like, okay, this is powerful. Let's do that now. Now you're going to take your own action, right? So um, with personality, I think that that's important is understanding that people have different framework and that you have to present ideas differently. And then talking about peer groups, you know, the more like ourselves that someone else is, the more influence they have. And there's, there's simple elements in communication that you can do. So remember we talked about identifying, you know, fact-based or feeling-based language. You want to change your language and also your pace to match that of the other person and being able to alter your communication style to mirror the person that you're participating in it with causes them to unconsciously start to reframe you in their peer group. And you'll see people who identify as like social chameleons, you know, they'll automatically start to change their accent or their, you know, their verbiage or their slang or some of their body mannerisms and stuff like that. But you always have to do it positively. And this is where doing things out of intention is so important. Like you might know that you need to mirror body language, right? But if the person that you're talking to is cold, and then you mirror this, well, this body language can also mean opposition or defiance or, uh, or being closed to ideas. And when you put your body into different positions, it not only affects your mood and the way that you communicate and the range of your body expressions, but it also affects the framework of how that other person is receiving you. So you have to know what the different bits of body language mean and only mirror things that are positive so that you're positively leading the interaction. And what's cool is, is if you successfully do this, it's not an abstract concept, you will see a change in your prospect and you can even test it, right? And you test it by making a minor change in your body language and watching to see if they reciprocate and move theirs. And if another person modifies their body language in response to yours, you're in sync you have rapport, move on to the presentation. So that's the milestone. And until you have it, don't present. And if you have more people on your sales team and you're not making the connection, turn over. Who is most like this person that it's going to be easier for them to persuade? I mean, an older couple walks in and the guy's ex-military and I've got a guy in the back who's 62 years old and he's ex-military and they come from a certain cultural background that he's familiar with. Oh man, I'm going to shoulder tap him. No problem if I'm a sales manager, because I know that all things being equal, assuming everyone's selling skills are the same, that guy will sell 10 times as much. They're much less likely to walk. They're much less likely to have objections that are just based on an emotional framework. And they're going to have an incredibly positive experience and recommend to other people in their peer group they come back and see that associate. And if you can get in your head into that process and recognize how important it is, and you have to create moments that allow you to have that impact so that you know, because you have to fervently believe in things in order to be able to get the ball rolling. And, uh, and, and that takes me to my next topic. If you want to talk about it is talking about dopamine and a dopamine detox, because I think that is probably one of the most horrible uh, grinding halts that I have seen in entrepreneurship, C-suites, all of it that stops people from being able to put new behaviors into place. So we can focus on that now or we can do it in a future episode. Yeah, d dig into that because I, I either, I, I think it was one of the other interviews I heard with you kind of go into that, which 
is fascinating. It was from a different perspective when we talk about digital detox and stuff like that. It, I'm always just like, yeah, whatever. This the the way you frame this made so much sense. Um, and then yeah, tie those things together on how that relates to kind of exactly what what, what, we're, what we're talking about here. Okay, so um, one of the the terms that we use in psychology um, and diagnostics is, is there's something called anhedonia. So anhedonia is the inability to feel pleasure or satisfaction from the things that normally to you. And um, so dopamine, I, I think it's mislabeled a lot. We, we tend to think of it as like a pleasure neurotransmitter. And what its real function is, is it drives action and programs behavior. So if you're thirsty and you see a glass of water, dopamine is what gets you up out of your chair and gets you to go and pick up the glass of the water and then drink it. Now, it's only about expected outcome. You might stand up and go over to the glass and it might be full of turpentine or vodka or something else. You know, you might see a piece of cake and be excited about, oh, I'm going to have a piece of that and eat it. Dopamine puts it in your mouth. It might taste terrible. So, but dopamine, those pathways, it also allows us to have the ability to invest in and take satisfaction from activities. So one of the problems of being, and remember we talked about the difference between evolution in our first episode, the, the difference between evolutionary biology and how that narrative can sometimes sabotage us when we move into of technology. Dopamine, because it's involved in ba everything, basic things like, you know, food, water, sleep, reproduction, you know, safety, all of that stuff. Um, it's one of the, it, it's cool that in that you can reprogram it in as little or as two or three days. You know, some of the things in the brain have a much longer reset time on them, but dopamine by virtue of the fact that it's key to so many things that are involved in survival, it has to have a shorter reset time. So I think all of us have had the experience at one point or another where we don't have a desire to do an activity that we know that we enjoy and that we love just because we don't feel like it's going to give us any pleasure. And what happens is that we get so saturated by high dopamine activities, things that, um, that give us a really big pop in the nucleus accumbens that hit us with a whole bunch of pleasure. And those pathways get programmed to that stuff preferentially. And then it makes all of the things that are below that level of stimulation seem uninteresting. And this can be crippling for so many people to be able to take action. And, so what you do is, is you reprogram your dopamine pathways. And it's very simple. For three days, you stay away from food for pleasure eating, sugary food, fatty food, stuff that you're eating to enjoy. You want to try and make a diet for yourself for three days that's just focused on getting you nutrition, right? You're going to refrain from all high stimulation activities. So, you know, watching movies, playing video games, being on social media on your phone, picking up your phone, you know, um, uh, maybe listening to music, driving, you know, whatever it is that brings you joy, going to take it off of the table for a minute. Um, and obviously, because of the overwhelming um, uh, sensory nature of it, you want to stay away from intimate interactions too. They're just for three days. You know, we're not ruining anyone's relationship here. Then, um, once you do that, during the time that for three days you're taking a break, you can have a journal 
and some people hate the word journal because it makes them think of F-types and bongo drums and all of that. You want you make a scientific data sheet if that's your thing. And every time that you find that you have a craving for a high dopamine activity, don't say no to yourself. It's not a process of self-denial. Instead, you go to that data sheet or that journal and you write out, okay, I'm craving sushi. So the next time I'm going to go, this is what I'm going to order. And this is what I want to have. And this is where I want to go. And then you document it. And then you let it go and you move on. And during that time period, you can do any low stimulation activity that you want. You can read a book, you know, as long as it's not pleasure reading. This is personal development time. You can um, brainstorm ideas on things that you're looking to do. You want to focus on planning rather than execution of activities. And that way, your body has a chance to change its tolerance um, I think a lot of us take this for granted, but again, we're talking about evolutionary biology. If you're like an anthropologist and you take some tribesman or tribeswoman from you know a remote place where they barely wear clothing, and you take them to a highly populated urban area and throw them in clothing, their whole body will break out. And that's because the brain has to develop tolerance and get used to input. It's how we we do everything and because it's a balance for the biological processes that replace ourselves and all of that. So um, you want to reset your tolerance to everything. So for those three days, you map out all of that. And after that, that, was that third day, something amazing will happen. And that will be on day four, if you make your bed, let's say, you will feel a sense of accomplishment for it. If you finish that research paper, you will feel a sense of accomplishment for it. You'll, you, you won't be so desensitized by high dopamine activities that you won't be able to appreciate and actually want to execute some of the steps that you have been putting off because we are evolutionarily programmed to seek high dopamine activity. What are the highest dopamine activities? They're the things that promote our survival and put food in our bellies. So if we have a culture that gives us super, you know, technologically spiced up versions of all of that nonstop, you know, on demand and a phone in our pocket, it can make it almost impossible for us to be able to make time for personal development. So in essence, you are changing the way that your brain responds to your own efforts of self-development and your own efforts at achievement. And then, like we talked about before with the primacy of memory and how you know the priming of memory can change depending on if something's positive or negative, every single time that you achieve something that's on that list that you did in the journal or that you know, something that after that dopamine detox, you need to come up with a way that's unique enough to celebrate it that you'll get a, a flash build memory and you'll be able to hold on to it. And this is how we start develop a more balanced view and stop having things like imposter syndrome and bad you know, cognitive beliefs that are holding us back from our goals. It only takes 21 days to establish a new behavior. And it, unfortunately, it's for bad behaviors too. Um, there's, a, there's a famous book called Make Your Bed. You know, If you every morning for 21 days hold yourself accountable and make sure that you don't leave, you know, move on to the next process of your whatever in the morning until your bed is made. Not only after a dopamine detox will you fit to feel a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment, but after 21 days, it will actually take more effort to not make your bed 
than it will to make it. You'll do it unconsciously. It'll be an automatic process. You'll be thinking about what you're going to be doing with your day and look down and the bed will already be made. And that gap of putting in new behaviors is that there's a resistance to innovation in the mind. And you're, you're to be an early acceptor of that new information, you have got to do a dopamine detox. You have got to set small manageable, achievable goals. We use the smart system, you know, specific, um, measurable, uh, actual, you know, uh, time, time specific, you know, whatever reasonable goals. You just make these tiny little goals. And every time that you do one, you hit a milestone, you celebrate, and you also look backward at your calendar and see all of the tiny goals that you've already achieved. And if those are bite-sized enough and you have set a pattern of behavior in, you can decide literally what kind of person you want to be what kind of habits you want to have, what kind of habits you want to lose. And you will have a methodology for being able to reprogram the things that bring you pleasure and make it so that the things that bring you pleasure are things that also advance your success. And then you will become an inspiration to the people that are around you because they will see everything that you have achieved. And to you, that those things will be effortless. Yeah, and it's that manageable it's that possible and doable i mean we're talking you know take a couple of days for this detox take 21 days for a habit i mean that's a snap of the fingers moment in time <laughs> right and do string a couple of those together and you've absolutely changed your life but the same thing happens in reverse. If we go 21 days on high dopamine activities and we do 21 days of being in a context where we're doing a bad behavior or a lazy behavior, that becomes the default. I, I think that um, after studying psychology for almost two decades, the, the model that I like to think of the metaphor is that the, the human psyche is kind of like a pearl in an oyster. And um, you get like a little grain of sand or a seed or whatever. It gets into that oyster and that little irritant, the, the oyster is constantly putting layer upon layer upon layer upon the outside of it to protect itself. And that is how our modalities of personality and personal expression are based on our belief systems. You know, it, we don't think about it um, abstractly, but let's say you see a lot of this in like um, in people in relationships. If you were really unlucky and you got a very interpersonally exploitative or like narcissistic partner, which is like 1% of the population, right? And then you were unlucky again, either through habits or maybe the way that you were raised or to seek a particular personality, that kind of thing, that you happened to date like two of those people in a row and they had a really deleterious effect on you. Or maybe you went into a particular business venture and it really burned you twice. It doesn't matter to the brain that the actual percentage chances of those happening are only like one and a half, two percent. Instead, your brain sees the intensely negative experience. And if you're not in charge of your own psychology, you will start finding yourself drawing boundaries, coping mechanisms to be able to avoid that kind of situation, even though it's not actually statistically likely. You could redefine all of your level of trust with people in relationships, be unwilling to open up. You could be very leery of commitment. You could, you could have an entire strata of all kinds of things that are just based off of the belief system that if you don't protect yourself, that you're going to be hurt and taken advantage of. And 
that experience is based on that small sample size. You, know, you, you fell asleep watching the History Channel and woke up believing in past lives because you had that experience and it was really powerful. And because it was powerful, you think that that's synonymous with truth. And that's why examining those belief systems and comparing them with reality is really important. And whether you have a therapist or you don't, um, finding a person who's not judgmental that has a different perspective than you. Avoid that desire to find someone who's just like you. Try to find someone who's different from you, who has different perspectives on things. And bounce your process, bounce your beliefs, bounce your ideas off of that person so that you can check. You know, Because if you get the right person, they'll ask you the right questions to find out whether or not those beliefs that you have are conditionally true completely true, not true at all, or just based on a limited set of experiences that have ill-informed your process. Yeah. And that are keeping you, you have no idea about, you don't even know you have a belief around that. That is just truth, right? Mm -hmm. and there's so many things like that. That's what makes this entire subject so, so powerful. I, I love it. I appreciate you being on here and sharing this because this, I hope it's opened up people's eyes <laughs> as, as even if you're not excited about it, I don't know how you can't be, but again, different personality types. Um, <laughs> so whether we do it, um, I, I don't know if our time is up for this episode or not. I think the next thing to talk about is how you actually teach someone else or teach yourself. Now that you know what it looks like, now you know how to overcome the, the dopamine resistance, overcome the decision paralysis. You, you know that you need to go backwards from the desired result and, and break it up into tiny little steps. You know that you have you know, primacy with negative memories and that you're going to have to combat, combat those associations in order to have a more balanced, realistic, factual impression of both yourself and your process. You understand that you can't just use your own approach to talk to everyone now that we have that framework, now we have to talk about how to get those new skills. And if, and if necessary, especially in coaching or consulting, how do we transmit those skills to someone else, have them own them and put them into that process without sitting down and giving them a three-hour you know, talk on how dopamine processes work and all of that? Because you can't necessarily do that with everybody. And Sometimes people are just focused on results. They're, they're coming to you because they want solution for a specific problem. And if you're, you try to go uninvited into their entire belief system or their cognitive process and they're not ready for that information, then it will always be perceived as an attack. The only way that I've found that a person will come to you and actually be excited about hearing about that kind of stuff if it doesn't necessarily align with their own personal belief system, is if they see you as a more successful version of themselves. And if they're willing to have that perception, then they come to you knocking on your door asking for information, and they want to know what is missing from their own process or what are they looking at the wrong way in order to be able to take the next step. And honestly, that's what I look for in a consulting client, someone who recognizes the gap recognizes what it is that they have to gain out of it and just doesn't know how to do it because that person's ready to change. And for someone else, you might spend the first 10 sessions just trying to get them on board with change in the first place because they're convinced that their approach is the only way to be successful. That's huge. If you're able to, let's make that a part three because I know we've, we've taken people for an hour here, yeah. taking a deep dive. 
I think that is a, a phenomenal next level of this of of everyone going great. I'm on board now. What? How, how do I actually apply that? I, I love it. And if you're um, interested in contacting me or interested more about what I do, I will be providing electronic business card link uh, to uh, to uh, to Jason so that he can put that in with the notes with the episode. Uh, or you can just write me. Uh, it's my first name and my last name with a period in the middle at gmail.com on shard.seraphim at gmail.com. I'm happy to help. Awesome. Monshar, thank you so much. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks so much for tuning in and being a part of this show. If you want help creating authority building video content or even a client generating show of your own, go to MediaLeadsCo.com and let's connect. I'll talk to you soon on the next Strategy and Action.